I also want to make it clear that uh, during this season of, uh, of illness, as with any season, um, the sacrament of unction is not only available but encouraged. Um, if any of you is sick, James says, he should call the presbyter, the priest, and have him come and anoint him with oil. Uh, that is one of the privileges of my office, is that I get to visit people who are sick and pray with them and anoint them with, uh, with oil for healing. Uh, please do not avoid asking me because you're afraid you're going to get me sick. Um, it is a, a privilege of my ministry that I get to do that. I want very much to be able to serve our folks by doing that. So I ask that you please uh, not refrain from doing that. I will, however, if I get sick, not come to you. But that's why we have a supply priest. Hopefully, between Ron and me, one of us will be well at all times. So Paul says in chapter 5 here of Romans that just as sin entered the world through the one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and then he goes off on one of those famous Pauline digressions where Lord knows how many verses scholars argue about when he picks his train of thought back up, but what he's talking about here is the doctrine of original sin. Has anybody ever heard of original sin? Right? So, original sin is not figuring out a sin that nobody else has done before. There's a really funny, uh, a funny bit by a comedian named Eddie Izzard who talks about original sin, like, what, beating badgers with wooden spoons? Oh, I've never seen that one before. No, original sin is the idea that all of us, simply by virtue of being human, by being born of Adam, so to speak, all of us are sinful. Now, there are a bunch of different ways you can understand this doctrine. Some believe that it is by virtue of the, uh, the marital act, the conjugal act, that people uh, become impregnated with sin, which is why it was important that Mary, Jesus' mother, not only that she not uh, be with a man in order to, uh, to be pregnant with Jesus, but that her parents also uh, could not have, have been together. That's the, the doctrine of the immaculate conception refers to the idea that Mary must have been conceived uh, without uh, her parents having had sexual intercourse. Um, there are other ways of understanding original sin that involve simply being descended from Adam, the idea that there is somehow something in our, in our very makeup that by virtue of the fall is twisted, is, is bent. Uh, and, and I think there's good reason to, to see this when we look in the, in the story of Genesis. Before the fall, uh, people were in, in a garden where everything was provided for them. They had to work, but it wasn't toilsome labor. It wasn't painful. Uh, but then afterward, everything fell apart. Every relationship which was once whole was broken. Every thing that was once perfect was bent. But there's another way to think about it, and, and I think this also makes good sense, which is that if we read the story of Genesis, the story of the fall, where, as, as Kay just read to us, where, where Eve is told by the serpent, oh, you're not going to die. No, in fact, if you eat that fruit, you're going to be just like God. Well, that's that's the story of the human condition. That's the universal story of what happens to all of us 
when we say, yeah, I know I shouldn't do that. I'm going to do it anyway. There's a singer-songwriter named Sarah Groves. She's got a song where she talks about that. She says, you know, because some people will say, well, you know, if only, if only Adam hadn't sinned, if only Adam and Eve hadn't done that, then we'd be fine. You know, it's their fault. And she says, if I were honest with myself, had I been standing at that tree, my mouth and my hands would be covered with fruit. Now, the story is that of all of us who, when told by God, this is the way you should walk in, we say, no, I think I'm going to do my own thing. A rabbi friend of mine pointed out that, uh, it, that that's the beginning of Torah, uh, of the book of Genesis. At the end of Genesis, you get the character of Joseph, who, when his brothers come to him and after his, their father dies and they're afraid that he's going to take his revenge on them for having, you know, basically sold him into slavery, you know, which would be understandable. He says, what am I, God? I don't have that kind of power. It's not my place to make that judgment. Whereas Eve said, yeah, that's idea of being like God sounds kind of appealing to me. And Adam, who was with her, went along with it. Joseph says, no, there's a better way. And we see that manifested perfectly in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. We read today the story of His temptation when He is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness and He's fasting for 40 days and nights and the tempter comes to Him. At first it's simple, it's like, you must be really hungry. You are who you say you are. You just tell one of these stones to become bread. You could do that, huh? Or he takes them up to the corner of the temple. Pretty big drop. But, um, you know, if you are who you say you are, and if the psalm's true, then when you jump off, a bunch of angels are going to come and catch you before you land. Why don't you go find that out? Let's test this. He takes him to a high peak, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, all you got to do is worship me, and you can be sure that all this will be yours. But Jesus said no. And in, in his temptation, we find encapsulated the course of his entire life a life of obedience, a life of perfection, a life of the one who knew no sin himself, who every time he was tempted, resisted. The one person who could not, never join with us in our prayer of confession, who could never say that he had done the things he should not have done, and that the things he didn't do or things that he should have done. That one man's obedience is what made it true that the gift is not like the trespass. See, if, if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, well, how much more then does God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? And again, Paul says that God's gift is not like 
the result of that one man's sin. The judgment followed that one sin. It brought condemnation justly, rightly. But even after all of the trespasses of humanity, God's gift brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? And consequently, just as the result of one trespass, one sin was condemnation for all men, so also the result of that one act of righteousness. And you can think of that one act of righteousness as encapsulated in Jesus' resistance of the devil. You can think of it as His giving Himself on the cross. But that result of that was justification that brings life for all. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. This is why... Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right when he said this. This is a book called Life Together by a German theologian and martyr of the 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Our our vestry is reading this together. He says, it is not in our life that God's help and presence must still be proved, but rather God's presence and help have been demonstrated for us in the life of Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, more important for us to know what God did to Israel, to His Son, Jesus Christ, than to seek what God intends for us today. The fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I shall die. The fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I too shall be raised on the last day. Our salvation is external to ourselves. I find no salvation in my life history, but only in the history of Jesus Christ. Only He who allows Himself to be found in Jesus Christ and His incarnation, His cross, and His resurrection is with God and God with Him. So what Paul is saying and what Bonhoeffer is echoing is that all of us, maybe not every time, but all of us sometimes will fail the test. We pray that God would not lead us into temptation because we know what can happen to us. There's nothing that we can do, nothing we can accomplish, no amount of obedience that we can muster on our own that will somehow make us acceptable to God. It is only Jesus' righteousness made available to us that can save us. It is only His death that can fulfill the righteous penalty for sin in a way that is to our benefit and not our destruction. Do you feel that? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Sometimes I feel that. Sometimes I feel that so deeply tears come to my eyes, and then other times I know it's true, but I have a hard time connecting it. It's one of the reasons that we have, along with the sacrament of unction, that we have the sacrament of reconciliation. I've been struck 
just recently when I administered the sacrament of unction to somebody in our congregation. I prayed for them after I anointed them with, with the oil, praying that as you are outwardly anointed with this holy oil, so may our Heavenly Father grant you the inward anointing of the Holy Spirit of His great mercy. May He forgive you your sins, release you from suffering, and restore you to wholeness and strength. May He deliver you from all evil, preserve you in all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then this concluding prayer, so beautiful. The Almighty Lord, who is a strong tower to all who put their trust in Him, to whom all things in heaven, on earth, and under the earth bow and obey, be now and evermore your defense, and make you know and feel that the only name under heaven given for health and salvation is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Almighty Lord be now and evermore your defense and make you both know and feel that the only name under heaven given for health and salvation is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist talks about this feeling, this feeling of guilt. He talks out at the beginning of the psalm, he says, how happy are they, how blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is put away, those to whom the Lord imputes no guilt and whose spirit there is no guile, people who have a clear conscience. How wonderful it is, he says, to feel that. He says, but I didn't always feel that. Verse 3, he says, when I held my tongue, my bones withered away because of my groaning all day long for your hand was heavy upon me day and night. My moisture was dried up as in the heat of summer. This is the testimony of somebody who's feeling guilt, not somebody who's feeling guilt that isn't theirs to feel, not guilt that somebody's laid on them unfairly, but this is the true, honest feeling of somebody who knows that they've messed up, who knows the things that they should have done that they failed to do, knows that there are things they shouldn't have done that they did anyway. As they sit and stew in that guilt, the shame and the pain of it, they wither away. But then, the psalmist says, verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't conceal my guilt. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and then you forgave me the guilt of my sin. Now, you can do that without confessing your sins to a priest. It still counts. I mean, every Sunday morning when we get together, we confess our sins. In fact, during Lent, we're so eager to do that, we basically do that before we do anything else. We've got to get that out of the way first with a litany of, of, uh, of uh, uh, with a penitential rite. Every once in a while, I forget that we did that, and then I do confession. I remember last time, Last year at Lent, there was one Sunday morning at the 8 o'clock that we got a chance to confess any sins we'd committed since the beginning of the service until 15 minutes later. I think I had some material, honestly. But Jesus' forgiveness is available to you when you confess it to Him. Whether you confess it privately, whether you confess it to somebody that you're close to, somebody that maybe is an accountability partner, somebody who's a friend. But there is a way in which our sacrament of reconciliation, the practice of confession, is, 
a gift of the church. It is a means by which God enables His people to know and to feel that He has forgiven them, to know and to feel that they are reconciled to Him, to be assured by a brother or a sister in Christ that their sins are forgiven, that they are put away. And so I would invite some of you and perhaps I would urge others to avail yourself of this. It's available to you any time. I am happy to set a time to meet with you, but during Lent it is especially appropriate. And I'll be here every Tuesday from 5.30 to 6.30 sitting there at the rail. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to sit, you can sit. I guess if you want to stand, you can stand. If you don't have that much to confess, if you have a lot, you may want to sit or kneel, but, but I'll be there. If nobody shows up, I'll read my book and that'll be fine. But, but that's one of the things that's available to you and I encourage you during this season. Out on the table in the narthex is this piece of paper that I handed out at the, at the uh, family meeting last week that lays out some of the resources for a confession that are in our prayer book. Places where you can go through think through your confession before you make it. It also gives you the pages for the actual right. You can come and you can pick one, form one or form two. I know how to do both. But I want to commend that to you, my brothers and sisters, during this Lenten season, that you may know and that you may feel that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen.